decentralized applications might someday offer alternatives to modern monopolies. Uber, Airbnb, Facebook, Amazon, all of these services could be recreated on a decentralized stack of technologies like Ethereum, IPFS, and Gollum. Fully decentralized services could be more transparent, cheaper, and more efficient. But let's be realistic. Today, even the simplest applications of fully decentralized blockchains don't work as well as we need them to. CryptoKitties offered a glimpse into how a simple viral application can limit the throughput of Ethereum. And don't forget that these technologies are, some ways, still subject to centralization in their current form. Miners form the decentralized consensus layer, and that mining activity is physically centralized in large mining farms. The decentralized future is possible, but in order to get there, we will need to make progress on the low-level tools that such a world will eventually be built upon. And this is the realization that today's guest Carl Flourish had. Carl is a researcher for the Ethereum Foundation, and he was initially excited about the prospect of decentralized apps, such as a decentralized Uber. But as he looked more closely at the space, Carl realized how early we are and how much work there is to be done on foundational technologies. Proof of stake is the central topic of today's discussion. Proof of stake is a consensus mechanism that is an alternative to proof of work. In proof of work, miners race to validate blocks of transactions. This results in duplicated effort and perhaps wasted energy. In proof-of-stake, validators are chosen to approve transactions. These validators lock up an amount of currency that they are willing to stake. If a validator acts badly, the validator will lose their entire stake. This mechanism could be more efficient than proof-of-work, and we will explain why that is in this episode. If proof-of-stake does function, it could lead to a faster, truly decentralized Ethereum blockchain. And that's a remarkable potential outcome. If you're interested in checking out our open source community, you can go to github.com slash software engineering daily, or you can download our apps to check out what we're working on. You can check out softwaredaily.com to find those apps. We've also got meetups coming up in New York and Boston and also in LA eventually. So if you want to follow our meetups, you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup. And with that, let's get to this episode. Carl Flourish, you are an Ethereum developer. Welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Hello, hello. How's it going? It's going great. It's really good to talk to you. Last time we spoke, I was still very unfamiliar with decentralized technology, and I was interviewing all these people where at the end of the interview, I would be thinking that this person that I just interviewed is very intelligent, but this technology is totally alien to me. So like, I didn't know why these crypto people such as yourself wouldn't just go back to building web apps and leveraging Amazon. And But now I get it actually, because after spending a little bit of time with this, I get it that there are actual technological breakthroughs. What was it that made you commit to the decentralization space before there was all this hype, before there were so many people involved? What was it that clued you in that there was something important going on here? I got into the space essentially because I've for, you know, ever since I grew up, my dad has been a bit anti-authoritarian and alternative. And I resonated with this kind of decentralized future. I didn't really know what it was. I knew that I was searching for a kind of re-envisioning of how we might be able to kind of even structure society in a broader sense. And I, you know, is it capitalism? Is it socialism? Is it communism? Is it libertarian? You know, whatever. And I saw this technology and I, I definitely didn't know what it was, but I, I felt like there was this kernel of something different, something that is 
uh, fundamentally new about it. And I, it's taken me, so I kind of went on that, went on that, that gut feeling. And it has brought me down this crazy, crazy rabbit hole. And I think I'm starting to get an idea of what that is and like what decentralization really means. And so now when you ask me this question, why am I in this space? I can say that it's it's because I think that there is a lot of value in constraining central authorities, it, constraining power. And so what that basically means is if you, in short, absolute power corrupts absolutely something along these lines. When we have this ability to constrain power, it actually gives people at a level of trust that is not able to be achieved in other settings because you know that there is you know, some recourse for bad behavior. And so this has been my focus from then till now. Now I just kind of have a better idea of what it really is that makes this space special. Yeah, because I remember last time I talked to you, most of what we discussed was the big picture. And I think this was largely because I was not super familiar with the engineering side of things in the decentralization space. But you were very good at explaining the big picture, the decentralized Uber, the decentralized Airbnb. Was there a moment where you realized that there were some actual engineering underpinnings and that we weren't just telling ourselves a story about how we would eventually get to this decentralized future? Yeah, I would say it was an exploration into what a like smart contract blockchain can do. So it, I started out, I knew that you could create a decentralized Uber and you could do it by, it seemed clear what those rules were. However, I, I didn't know what the actual design principles and architecture philosophies came in are behind this technology. And so the thing that that really allowed me to realize this is is working at the Ethereum Foundation, working, you know, with Vitalik on Casper and Vlad. Casper by the way is uh, Ethereum's proof of stake protocol replacing proof of work. We could get into that. That's a whole long story, but Working on that, I realized that there is a fundamentally different way to design these applications. And that, that means that we take into consideration economic incentives, right? It's this concept of crypto economics where, where you're able to say, okay, what is the essence of decentralized Uber? Because we're using that. It's essentially taking Uber, but we are replacing parts of it, that central authority that that currently are able to, for instance, like price gouge the drivers or engage in unfair tipping or, or something like this. And that is actually a something that is a, a design practice in the domain of software engineering. I'm just currently, I think everyone is currently learning about and getting a better understanding of. Yeah, and I have a bunch of questions about Casper. I did my homework a little bit better this time. But just a few more questions about this area to, to warm us up. Since you mentioned you know, your dad had an influence on you and you've been thinking about this stuff for a while, it does feel like the pernicious aspects of centralization are coming home to roost recently with kind of people starting to feel anxious about Google, people feeling anxious about Facebook and Twitter, all for various reasons, but somewhat related reasons, you know, sort of this opaque censorship or uh, potential abuse of monopolistic power. Like uh, I read this article recently about the case against Google. I don't know if you saw that one, but it was just about how Google penalizes vertical search engines and prevents any search company from coming up, allegedly. One thing I wonder about is if you have a sense that there needs to be any kind of regulation or... Because what I love about the the decentralization world is you can look at this and you can play this out into the future in like five or ten years. And it doesn't really seem like there's anything that a Google, for example, could do to obliterate the world of decentralization coming up with basically a full stack that is an alternative to the Google world. Uh, and then you've got you know hardware manufacturers that could come up with a hardware solution that would have properties that would take advantage of that decentralization. I think I remember seeing, uh, actually I heard a, a comment from, from Vitalik, the Ethereum founder, and he said his main concern, he, he's pretty optimistic, 
But his main concern is Google working with the U.S. government to come up with like a cryptocurrency that everybody just defaults to, which I guess that would be that would be problematic. That would be uh, potentially like, oh, that's worrisome for the decentralization space. But I just think it's funny because it seems like the Ethereum folks are the are the ones who have the best chance right now of building an alternative to the Google world. And they don't seem to even think about regulation. They don't seem to care about regulation. They're like, let's just build something better. Do you feel like regulation is something worth considering in our centralized world? I think that regulation absolutely will shape the ecosystem moving forward. And so a restrictive regulation may really hinder a lot of progress and it may hurt the actual the, the development of this space. So I definitely do think that regulation plays a key role. You're thinking about like regulation of ICOs or stuff like in this regulation against the cryptocurrency space. That's what you're thinking about. That's what I was thinking about. What regulation were you thinking about? Because there were multiple things there that I definitely would like to touch on. But Of course, yes. Well, so I guess there's two, que- uh, t- certainly two questions. Well, I was thinking more in the everyday conversation of, do we need to regulate Google? Do we need to regulate Facebook? Because they're abusive monopolies that are preventing people from starting rival businesses. So that, I guess that's one side of things. I, I hadn't even dis- thought about bringing up the ICO or cryptocurrency regulation space, but you can feel free to address those separately or in a way that ties together if you like. Okay, yeah. So there is, regulation is in some ways the same or a similar domain as cryptocurrency. And I'm talking about now regulation of like Google and Facebook, etc. Right? It, regulation is a a constraint on some kind of authority, some kind of power. Where you were describing Google has these monopolistic business practices, you know, allegedly, and the a response to that could be, okay, the government needs to now regulate Google. However, I believe, especially these days with technology moving so rapidly, a better option is very likely going to be cryptocurrencies and the kind of self-imposed regulation in the these design principles, right? The constraint on power. So if I were to design a Google, maybe there would be some economic incentive which, which prevents this monopolistic power. Now, at the same time, you are absolutely right that this, you touched on Vitalik's, you know, fear of the United States government and Google coming together to create a currency. I would say that the biggest threat to cryptocurrencies right now, most likely, I mean, that, that the one that resonates most with me at the very least is this idea where a decentralized technology, right, this decentralized tech, which has enabled a different kind of trust than we've ever seen, that kind of gets co-opted and corrupted and re-centralized, but packaged as a decentralized uh, platform. There is the possibility of a future where we get most of the decentralization that, you know, for instance, Ethereum is working to provide, but we get most of the trust that people uh, are using from these platforms. In other words, the, the ability to deploy a smart contract and know that it's not going to be censored or whatever. But then there's still like the master keys held by some central organization. And that, that would be super scary because there's so many new people getting into the space. There is the possibility that a centralized system that claims to be decentralized is actually used or maybe that the, you know, I, I don't really need to go down all the different hypotheticals, the thing that Vitalik said being one of them. But this this is definitely scary, right? Because the thing that I'm excited about is the new design principles, the new architecture, the new web stack that we can create and that that is crafted such that central authorities do not retain absolute power. That's the exciting part. And if we if we convince people that, that oh, no, essential authorities don't have absolute power, but in fact, they do have some kind of bad sway, that gets really dangerous because then you get the kind of the oppressive state that you don't even know is oppressing you. The 1984 scenario. Yeah. I think this will have a relation to our conversation because the way that Bitcoin, well, I guess, and Ethereum, if I uh, am correct, are arranged right now is you basically have an AWS type of entity that is managing the consensus, which is the collection of mining organizations 
where all of the you know all of the validation work is being done and if somebody took control of all those miners you could really disrupt the network is that accurate yeah absolutely i could continue this is my specialty in in a lot of ways right <laughs> please no please i mean we'll get, we'll get into the mechanics of proof of stake and why that is perhaps a, an alternative that leads to a more pleasurable form of consensus with less dangerous centralization. But yeah, I mean, go ahead and address that point from a high level. Yeah, I mean, from a high level, of course, the the point of these systems is that, okay, you design some incentives, and these incentives in under normal circumstances or under even uh, extenuating circumstances will produce results that you find desirable. And that, that means, in this specific case, creating a single blockchain, a single record of history that is, you know, not censorable. In other words, you can't, you know, censor new transactions or that can not be reverted. So you can't actually, you know, buy a house and then have your house, the money kind of reverted or the record reverted either one. And so this is, these are the properties that we want to maintain with proof of work as it is today. And you're, you're absolutely right that a system that is designed, architected to be decentralized doesn't necessarily mean that it is uncorruptible. And that is actually kind of the point. Uh, this is kind of what I was getting at with uh, saying that, okay, there's something can, that, that can masquerade as a decentralized platform, but in fact be a centralized platform. But yes, we are working with uh, proof of work today. And as you said, we're working also to, to replace it with Casper. Okay, so proof of work is a mechanism we've explained several times in recent episodes. But to abbreviate it, you have all these transactions that people are making throughout the world, and then the different miners have pools of transactions, and they pull from those pools of transactions, and they are racing to solve a cryptographic puzzle associated with a collection of transactions at any given time. When they solve the cryptographic puzzle, they have validated a block of transactions and they broadcast that to the rest of the full nodes on the network and that propagates to the light nodes and that's how you come to consensus about a blockchain in a proof of work scheme how does how do things work and this is basically how how things work in bitcoin and ethereum today how does a proof of stake con- system contrast with that proof of work based system great question so uh Proof of stake and proof of work both rely on this limited resource. There is something that is that is limited, and that resource is used as essentially voting rights for what is the main chain. So the limited resource in proof of work is energy, right? We, we don't have infinite energies. So that means that you can acquire this energy, and by acquiring more energy, you acquire more voting rights essentially, for building what, you know, for voting on what is the main chain. And so you vote with your your energy. And, and in fact, there are crazy analogies where uh, in proof of stake, we use security deposits. So security deposits, this actually, I'll, I will, I, and before I bridge the analogies, I'll, I'll explain. So that's proof of work, as you, as you described. Proof of stake, what we essentially do is we have these bonds and these bonds are locked up eth and that is you know the cryptocurrency in, in ethereum or a the the underlying one now the bonds represent your voting rights your your weight so the more eth you have locked up in this smart contract in this casper proof of stake smart contract the more voting rights you have for what is the actual main chain and so what we do is we're actually we're doing this hybrid Casper approach. So, so instead of replacing proof of work full steam ahead uh, in one fell swoop, we're doing a checkpointing scheme. So that means approximately every 50 blocks, we have a new checkpoint. And this checkpoint essentially is a single block which uh, validators, this is the, the people who have this bonded stake, uh, vote on a particular checkpoint. And this is a particular block at a certain height. So really, these, these checkpoints, the, the actual definition of them is just, you know, um, block number mod 50. And if that equals zero, then you're at the checkpoint. And so you just vote on what that block is. And if you get more than 66% of the votes then you, that is considered finalized. And what that means is that is in the main chain. 
Now, here is the, the classic problem. In proof of work, if you were to vote on a single block, that means that you have to burn energy. So that costs you money. It costs you money to vote. Now, but in proof of stake, it doesn't cost you money to vote. It's just essentially signing a signature saying, I, I vote on this particular chain. And so what has classically plagued proof of stake systems is this nothing at stake problem. And the nothing at stake problem is basically what I just described, where in proof of work, you don't have nothing at stake because you just created a block that means you burned some amount of electricity. In proof of stake, you created a block, but that just means that you signed a signature. So what we have to do is we have to slash validators, aka remove their bonds, remove their funds, delete their funds, by if we detect that they vote on two different chains. Because remember, our goal is to create a single chain with a single history that is you know, hard to revert and uncensorable. And so validators, if they vote on one chain, we are able to detect essentially, and I can go into the mechanisms there, but we're able to detect if they voted instead of just on one chain, but on a conflicting chain, on another chain that that is essentially a different version of the history. And so this is, so to kind of bring it all together, we're trying to create one chain and validators deposit some, some stake that is locked up ETH that is now used as their vote. When they vote on a particular chain, that constrains them to only that chain. And if they were to vote on a different chain, they would lose all of their deposit. And so this kind of, this mechanism, hopefully you can start to see it, this mechanism basically says, okay, let's say you vote, you're voting, you're voting, you're voting over and over on block after block, you're able to form a single chain that is very difficult to revert. So before the checkpointing, You've got these blocks that are accumulating. Are you seeing, are there disjoint chains that are developing and then you have different chains that are being voted on at that checkpoint or do the different validators have some system of keeping their chains aligned? Yes. So good question. So I mentioned this briefly, but uh, the underlying, this is a hybrid Casper. And so we are actually still using proof of work on the underlying system. And so this is proof of work is the block proposal mechanism. So proof of work is block proposal and proof of stake is like finality. And the block proposal mechanism is exactly doing what you said. So, so it, proof of work, you know, you're burning electricity to create a block, which means that miners have this incentive to build on the longest chain because then it's a higher chance that their block is included. And so you get this, you build up this single chain and then validators are confirming that chain, confirming that proof of work chain. The, so the validators, basically what they do is they wait until there's a certain block height, you know, 10, 20 blocks of proof of work blocks. And that gives them enough certainty to say, okay, actually, I, I believe that this block, this particular block is going to be in the main chain. So maybe block 100 is created. You don't know which one, if that's going to be in the main chain because it's not, it hasn't reached the kind of depth and you get this exponentially more difficult to revert property that, that you know, proof of work gives you. You wait until, you know, 10 blocks later. And now the current head is 110 and all the Casper validators start voting on block 100. They say, okay, this is probably in the main chain. And then that finalizes the block. So under current proof of work, we know that this is a pretty sturdy form of coming to consensus on the transaction history. And I understand that the model for deploying Casper, which is Ethereum's proof of stake, is it's going to be a series of different consensus mechanisms to roll out to full proof of stake. So we're easing into it and we're doing partial proof of work, partial proof of stake with this Casper friendly finality gadget where you're saying we're going to use proof of work for proposing blocks and then we're going to use proof of stake to finalize blocks. But if we've already got a proof-of-work system that works, and we're not throwing it away, why is finality important? Are we giving up some degree of consistency or some degree of consensus in our proof-of-work? Are we sacrificing some consensus reconciliation with the classic proof-of-work, and we're, we're moving that to the proof-of-stake periodic checkpointing? So we're not really giving anything up 
we probably will reduce the block rewards for proof of work, which means that, uh, you know, economically pretty reason it's pretty reasonable to guess that there will be less you know total difficulty on the chain aka less people doing proof of work but the the real reason why we're moving to proof of stake and by the way block proposal is done done with proof of work and hybrid casper but full casper is absolutely coming and being worked on and that completely strips out proof of work in you know completely and so the the reason why we're moving away from proof of work there are a whole whole slew of reasons however the first one and most clear uh, cut is proof of work currently burns an obscene amount of energy. So this is this is from from one perspective, this is a practical. Let's not you know destroy the earth with our consensus protocol, and that and and, and just to give you an idea of how much uh, currently the Bitcoin blockchain burns more energy than like 156 countries essentially. So this is a massive amount of energy waste. The second reason is because in proof of work you actually get a number of of undesirable qualities. Essentially, if you if you're able to 51% attack a proof of work chain, then you can do this spawn camping attack where you, where you produce blocks and there's no way to really remove your your massive mining equipment for instance um, without hard forking to a different proof of work protocol. So if you develop a new ASIC, then it can be problematic. But that's actually not the only thing. There's also in the UASF soft fork, so there was this whole uh, essentially user activated soft fork and that created this incentive for the soft fork chain to to arise and uh, this gets really complicated but essentially uh, you know what the soft fork chain if it was popular enough could have reverted what was at the time considered the main chain and so what this did is it, this proposed a systemic threat to the main chain so like most of what crypto economics and these protocols is doing is they are planning for the worst case scenario so they're they're essentially like minimizing that long tail mm -hmm. risk and what so when when i talk about these things it may sound oh that sounds like a crazy thing why would that ever happen well <laughs> that's that's what we're trying to plan for and that's why you trust the protocol is because we have a plan for each one of these terrible circumstances this is really critical because you know it, you could use a google you don't need proof of work you can just have proof of authority google will sign off on your transactions but then you know once again you have this this risk so uh, and the final thing that is actually very practical is that once we move to sharding, which we can totally talk about, which is, you know, scaling the blockchain, it's very useful to have a active validator set. So to scale a blockchain, um, you, you, I, I, maybe I'll, I'll get into this later, but having an active validator set is really important because it allows you to randomly sample from the validators and basically assign yes. validators to shards. That is a, a critical security property because if you were an attacker, you could focus your mining power on a particular shard otherwise, and that would do totally break the security of the system because we want one secure mechanism, one, con one secure consensus mechanism that then is able to propagate that, that trust throughout many, many different kind of chains or a large number of transactions on a blockchain. Yes, yes. Okay, I, I think I am seeing where we're going with this. So... We've seen that proof of work gives us a sense of security and a sense of safety and a sense of liveness so far over the last decade, and that makes us pretty comfortable with proof of work. But people are starting to pay more attention to blockchains, and more attack vectors are going to be tried. It's worth building more insurance in, and the 51% attack which we remain vulnerable to because if the miners got overtaken by 51% of some centralized evil malicious force, then we would have a severe problem. So we can create this proof-of-stake validation checkpointing, which does not necessarily have an effect on liveness, but it improves safety because you have validators that may or may not have mining power, but they have a stake in the system. They've got a bunch of money that they've put up in their, in their bond. They've put up some money and said, I'm willing to bet that I am going to tell the truth. And if I don't tell the truth, I'm going to lose all my money. And this is potentially even more useful in the future because you could move to full 
proof of stake and you could just have these validators be doing the job of the miners and you would be able to parallelize the confirmation of transactions but just to go to keep going slowly am i correct about the fact that we're basically just adding a little degree of safety and we're shifting some of the control of the blockchain to people who have a stake uh, in addition to people who still have that mining capacity. Yes, your description was very elegant. And I basically, and I, I would say that generally speaking, yes, we are, we are, uh, we are getting to a, we are adding a level of security that doesn't exist today that will be critical for the proper functioning of a massively scalable blockchain, right? Like, and not only that, I, I do actually, one thing that you did leave out was that it is going to be burning a massive, much, much smaller amount of energy. So, so okay, I would say- uh, When you get take- to sharding. Yeah. Oh, when you when you get to proof of stake in general, proof of stake is is great for. I mean, you know, it reduces the amount that you have to pay miners if you if even under the friendly finality gadget, even under the partial. Yes, because you're able to like reduce the the rewards, and so that reduces the incentive for people to spin up new mining nodes. Oh. Yeah. So even under this partial model, you're still getting you know energy savings. How much is is a question of macroeconomics, right? But. If you think about the the total vision of Ethereum, right, you wouldn't be able to, the actual architecture is a lot less clean and clear if you are using a proof of work system. The fact that you get this validator set and you can use this bonded ETH to not only incentivize the creation of a single main chain, but you can also incentivize the validation of, you know, shards or the, the creation of shards it's like just from a design principles standpoint, this is like what makes sense. This is the natural construction for a blockchain of this type, right? And proof of work is super elegant and super reasonable and is useful in a lot of different scenarios, but it is not the optimal kind of long-term solution for the kind of blockchain that Ethereum wants to be. And the kind of blockchain that Ethereum wants to be is a blockchain which provides you trusted execution of smart contracts that are scalable and can you know power a, a large percentage of the economic activity on planet earth <laughs> you know whatever okay so let's say the united states government steps in and launches a sybil attack where they spin up a bunch of accounts on ethereum and they purchase 75% of the ethereum in circulation and they use that 75% to have their stake. They make these big bonds and they be, they spin up a bunch of validator nodes. Is the Ethereum network vulnerable to that circumstance where you have, you know, 25% of the wealth of Ethereum in decentralized accounts like you and me and 75% is the US government teamed up with Google somehow? Is that problematic? So, this is an Amazing question. The critical thing when you're designing these protocols is you're, you want to constrain power, right? And so what that means is that any constraint you can provide, some of these constraints aren't necessarily, some of these are like fundamental constraints. So even if you do have 75% of the stake, let's think about what you can actually do. So here are some of the actions. And this is this is how you would design any of these protocols. And I'm talking about Casper, but I'm also talking about any any blockchain application built on Ethereum or you know another blockchain. And this is you you think about okay, the central authority, what can they do? Okay, one thing they can do is they can revert history. So they can cause a safety failure. That means that they voted on two different chains and those two chains both got finalized. So that means that the the users are basically, you know, let's say you withdrew your money from a deposit it on one chain, but it didn't actually go through on the other chain. And, you know, some kind of accounting got messed up and you lost your funds. So that's really bad. That's a catastrophic failure. Now, in that case, you will see at least one third of all of the total deposits of the validators get slashed. The U.S. government in this case is going to lose a, la- 
large sum of money. So that is one thing that they can do. And that also has other ripple effects, right? Maybe that decreases the value of ETH in general or, you know, so this is, I'm not going to be able to give you a full recount of like what is going to happen, but this is, you know, these are the actions in terms of, uh, these are the actions. So now, the second thing is they can start censoring. They can, for instance, censor other validators. Now, one cool thing about Casper in the way that we have designed it is that it actually has a censorship resistance built in. So how this works is if validators detect censorship, then what they can do is they can actually create a soft fork. So this is a, they can start mining their own chain, a chain that is not censored because the, you know, the censoring party is on the main chain. Now, what this soft fork can do is automatically without even a hard fork, without having to, you know, cause a, you know, big social change where everyone updates their clients to remove the the US government's coins, validators on the censored chain will actually be able to, they lose money. So everyone's losing money in this. In Well, not everyone, but the US government, let's say they have you know 75% of stake. So their chain is working seemingly normally, but the sensor chain is not. From the sensor chain's perspective, it's a little hard to get your head wrapped around this stuff. But now from the censored chain's perspective, the validators who are online, so the censored ones that were leaving, they are going to be losing money, but they're losing money at a much less rapid rate than the offline validators, aka the US government. So the US government is losing money very rapidly and the online validators from that chain, the censored ones, they're gaining money in proportion. So eventually what will happen is that, you know, that 25% of censored validators are going to be is going to become 66% eventually of the of the total bonded stake. And at that point, there is the potential for two chains to be finalized. Now, what that what that means is this is kind of a like a leaking mechanism where a censoring majority is actually leaked out of the the validation role. And the reason why this is important for a number of things is what we're doing is we're analyzing the incentives for all of the different parties involved. And so so one incentive that's actually pretty cool is if you believe that the censored chain is more va- or will win. Right. And and one chain is more valuable than the the one chain is going to have all the value. Then there's actually this incentive for you to defect from the sensor in chain, the you know government owned blockchain. And so even in the case where a and, and so all of this this combined, even in the case where the government is going to be, you know, let's say reverting finality or it's going to be censoring other validators, even in these cases, they are constrained in what they can do. They have these disincentives. They have these mechanisms, these checks and balances, which keep them in line. And that is a incredibly powerful thing, not only because in the case of catastrophic failure, we have a plan of action, but also because it discourages that catastrophic failure from ever happening. And that is what we're trying to do when we build these blockchains. We are trying to reduce the risk of catastrophic failure. And to put it in terms of safety versus live safety and liveness, uh, in this kind of event, if the United States government did decide to launch this sort of attack... There would be a period of time where the Ethereum network might not work so well, so you would have some liveness issues, but safety is guaranteed. Yes, in at least yes, in the censorship case, in the case where they revert finality or they finalize two checkpoints, I should say, that is, you know, safety is not necessarily guaranteed because safety basically means, okay, is is history going to change under your feet? I see. Okay, got it. Well, I think we've given a pretty good overview of some of the mechanics of proof of work and proof of stake, uh, as best as we can do on a podcast. <laughs> um, well, a few more elements of this, actually. So if I'm a miner, if I'm an Ethereum miner, how does Casper affect my business? Well, you know, won't affect it too, too much, maybe. I mean, there may be reduced rewards. In the long term, you should probably create a staking pool. Or a you know take your your funds that you made from mining and deposit them as uh, Ethereum validators. So it is a pivot, but you can put your mining ha- hash power on something else. You know, mine Zcash or some other chain, or start a cloud provider. Why not? One hundred. <laughs> yeah. 
So what's the rollout plan for Casper? Because I know we want to talk about sharding and we want to talk about how we eventually get to full-on proof-of-stake. So we've talked about this proof-of-work with proof-of-stake. How do you get to the full-on Casper proof-of-stake deployed for the entire network? That's a good question. So essentially, we're starting out, we just released a testnet. And in fact, there are now multiple clients that have the, the hybrid Casper code implemented, which is super exciting. And so then the, the first step for is getting hybrid Casper deployed onto the mainnet. And eventually that will require a hard fork. And the general idea is that you can then reduce the mining rewards over time and increase the staking rewards over time and get to a point where you finally replace the block proposal mechanism entirely. And that is with one possibility, which is, the, which is reasonable, is essentially these votes, they become blocks and maybe they become blocks on different shards. This is the area of more specification and research and not 100%, you know, strictly defined like the hybrid Casper, but it is something that we, we're kind of working on as we also work on sharding. Okay. Well, let's get into sharding. So we've talked about the resilience benefits of building a blockchain with proof of stake, what are the upsides? How is this going to move us to a world from AOL to, well, I guess I should say from dial-up to broadband, from you know default slow to default fast and performant? Yeah, so essentially when we have this, this validator state, this validator set, and even before then, we can, we, what we're going to do is we're going to begin the, we, well, we're already working on a sharding client, a sharded Ethereum client. And so the, the general idea is you have this validator set and the validator set is randomly sampled and assigned, each validator is assigned a block on a new shard. Now, the key behind sharding is what we want to do is we want to scale the blockchain while preserving decentralization. So what does that mean? That means that you can scale a blockchain a number of ways. You can scale a blockchain by creating, uh, making huge blocks that are very computationally difficult to compute and that only can be done by a, you know, AWS server or a quantum computer or, you know, whatever. That, these are, that's, that is scaling but not maintaining decentralization. The way we need to scale if we want to fulfill this kind of Web3 crypto economic vision is we need to scale while still allowing every laptop computer the ability to validate the network. We want to create a system where all the participants are, you know, small, relatively speaking, weak computers, but that combined creates this resilient and secure blockchain and scalable blockchain. And so the way we're doing that is we say, okay, validators, you don't actually have to download all of the blocks from all of the uh, from all of these these different shards so think about each shard as its own blockchain and validators are building blocks on those blockchains now we don't want the validators to hold all the blockchains on their computer because remember ethereum currently runs on a laptop computer if you were to run 100 ethereum side by side on your laptop computer your laptop computer would just explode right so so not really but the way that it works is these validators are able to be assigned a, a particular blockchain. They validate to check to see if it is valid, if those blocks are available. And once they see that the blocks are available, if they are available, they build on the longest available chain, the longest it's basically chain that they can download. And so what we're actually doing is we're separating out this, this validation from the like block proposal. So you'll now also have, so you have two classes of citizens. You have this validator that's, that's checking that blocks are available. And then you have this block proposer, which is downloading all of a single chain, which is basically what an Ethereum client does today, and proposing new blocks on that chain and you know executing transactions, basically bundling up transactions into blocks. And validators are saying, okay, uh, is that block available? Can I download all of it? Does it make sense? Let me include it in the what I believe is the next step for this particular shard. And so what, what that does is that means, okay, now we're able to build 100 different shards, which is what we're starting out with, 100 different shards shards while still maintaining this property that every validator, every participant is running on a laptop. It's just to drive the point home a little further for the 
efficiencies of a sharded blockchain. So in today's blockchain validation mechanism, you've got miners racing to validate similar blocks of transactions. So each of them has access to a mempool. The mempool is roughly the same, and they're probably going to pull out similar transactions from the mempool and decide which of those transactions go into a block. And all of the miners are competing to solve not exactly the same puzzle, but a very similar puzzle. And they're racing to validate overlapping transactions. So basically, out of n miners, n minus 1 are going to have their work essentially go to waste. I mean, it's arguably not going to waste because we this is the only system that we know from empirical data works to keep a blockchain consented upon in a safe way. But that's just empirical data, which is why going to proof of stake makes a whole lot of sense to me, at least trying it out, because the only way to get empirical data is to run the experiment. But just emphasize, well, I guess talk a little bit more about this. So because with proof of stake, you don't have to have everybody doing duplicate work. You can actually divide up the work safely. So so really emphasize why this is important. Why is it so important that with proof of stake, we are dividing up the mempool and we're not having this duplicated work? How much savings for time and energy are we getting here? So essentially, the current Ethereum blockchain runs you know around 15 transactions per second now with sharding eventually there we will be able to run you know thousands of transactions per second 10,000 more whatever now with with this kind of version one sharding you get a you know let's say like 100 x increase you have 100 shards i mean it's not exactly this however you you basically get these like a hundred parallel Ethereum chains that we know today running side by side, all progressing in unison, essentially. I mean, I mean, not basically the biggest bottleneck right now with blockchains, the thing, the biggest thing holding holding the the space back is the fact that we we have the the spotlight on us and there are tons of developers that want to build the next Facebook, want to build the next Uber, want to build the next whatever. And they currently can't do that. And that is because there just isn't enough space in the blockchain. There isn't enough transactions per second. It can't handle it. And so what we're doing is we're saying, okay, we need to make sure that all these applications that need to exist for this decentralized vision are compatible on the blockchain, and so what we're doing is we're 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 creating uh, we're working on sharding, which is going to speed up the transactions per second massively for the core Ethereum, and then we're also you know innovating on you know design practices so you can actually you know bundle transactions together, for instance, and uh, submit less information to the main chain, but but get more effect. And so Ethereum currently transacts about as many supports about as many transactions as Uber does. And so if you were to implement Uber in a naive way, maybe it would just fill up a single Ethereum blockchain. And so what we want to do is we don't want to just support Uber. We want to support Uber, Facebook, and every competitor and, you know, the universe. And so we need to, instead of just having one Ethereum, we need 100 Ethereums or maybe 1,000 Ethereums, 100x, 1,000x, what, we are, what we're doing today. Okay. So, yes, I'm with you. Like, scaling transaction throughput is going to be great for scaling Ethereum. And I don't think we have time to talk about Plasma, unfortunately, but Plasma is a way for scaling smart contract execution. And it has something to do with sort of turning every smart contract into its own scalable entity. Maybe we'll have to do another show on that. But is the problem only transaction throughput, or is it also a lack of other infrastructure? Because, you know, for example, Ethereum is the world computer, but it's not the, like, it wouldn't make sense to do S3 uh, with the Ethereum blockchain. Like, you'd probably do that on something like IPFS. And I have not really heard anybody proposing some sort of, like, data warehousing solution built on the blockchain or some distributed streaming service. You know, like, there's so much infrastructure that, for example, an Uber has built and that, you know, Facebook has built internally. And, 
you know, maybe you could have some mixture of centralized and decentralized uh, infrastructure. But I think uh, what I'm what I'm trying to get at is like, what are the other bottlenecks to getting to the decentralized Uber? Do we need IPFS to be in production and to be proven to work, or do we only need? Do we just need Ethereum and and we can like have we can build the decentralized Uber while using S3 plus Ethereum and then eventually migrate S3 to IPFS, for example. What's your roadmap for when we start to see people have these dApps that are widely used by consumers? When are we going to start to see those? Great question. So to address there are a number of kind of decentralized X or decentralized Y. So for instance, decentralized file storage, that is something that IPFS, Swarm, uh, Filecoin, there are projects, uh, StoreJ, there are projects that are working on this that allow you to essentially store a file and pay some crypto and magically that file will still be around when you want to retrieve it a year later. And this is an area of research that, and, and it's something that is actually in some ways enabled by the existence of an Ethereum type system. So if you think about a lot of you, when you actually said that some of these things can be centralized, this is in some ways correct, where you can provide the, the essence of what we're trying to do is we're trying to constrain central authority, we're trying to constrain power. And so what, what for instance, and I, 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 we, we aren't going to get into plasma, but just as a quick kind of example, the Plasma MVP is actually very interesting in that it has a central authority. It has a, a, a central actor, but this actor is constrained in that they can't actually steal any money. So, so essentially, people are able to use Plasma to send hundreds of transactions per second to one another. And still, that central authority, if it were to shut down or try to steal money cannot actually do anything. It won't succeed in taking anyone's money. The, the money that is on the plasma chain just leaves the plasma chain and goes back to the main Ethereum chain. And so the application stack that you're describing is a, going to be a product of the creation of this you know, decentralized file storage. It's going to be the, crea the creation of uh, better programming languages for you know, smart contracts. It will be ZK Snarks and uh, Starks and you know, crypto cryptographic uh, primitives that we can use accumulators and it will be also like the design principles of where you put your authority where you who you trust and how much you trust them and in what ways you constrain them um, and how that defines the way you trust them and so this is the end and maybe even uh, an example of a decentralizing factor is the moving towards these, you know, client-side web apps for in a, in the most mon you know almost mundane way, where you have the application is just running on your laptop instead of running on a central server and spitting out HTML. And so all of these pieces come together to form the decentralized web, and that is what we're what we're going to see and what we're we're starting to see the the formation of. But it does require a huge amount of work from developers, from you know tool creators from even architects to pioneer ways to build these systems. And it's going to be a big effort. All those things that I listed, those are things that, that need active contributors. So please contribute. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's a good place to wind down the conversation. Carl, it's really great talking to you. We touched on a lot of different things. I think we'll have to do another show in the not too distant future. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> I've got all these notes on Plasma that I didn't ask you about. So, yeah. All right. Well, man, it's always a pleasure, and I will talk to you soon. I'll, I'll see you in New York, hopefully. Yes, that would be awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. So much fun. Wow.